Data played a huge role in communicating what happened during the COVID-19 pandemic. Many of us would tune into the daily briefings full of charts, graphs, and maps to help us understand a big picture. So data can help us see how healthy we are as a nation, what state the health and care system's in, and what can be done to improve it. But how we interpret and share data, how it is used to influence the story or message, is just as important as the numbers themselves. Hello and welcome to the King's Fund podcast, where we explore the big issues and ideas in health and care. I'm Silver Nandesiva, Chief Analyst here at the Fund, and for our first episode of 2023, I'm delighted to be joined by the Chief Data Reporter at the Financial Times, John Byrne Murdoch. John, welcome. Thanks for having me, Silver. To start with, we know where you are now, Chief Data Reporter at the Financial Times, huge following on Twitter. Uh, in my world, a genuine data celebrity. But what's your story? Where did you start? How did you get into data journalism? And um, yeah, it's, it's a great question and it's quite a circuitous route. I grew up in a household where my dad was a math teacher and my brother's gone on to work in finance. And actually appropriate for this podcast, my sister is a doctor. So numbers, data, maths have always been there. I initially studied geography um, as a science at university. So again, there was a bit of a sort of evidence-based argument thread running through that. But ironically, it was the fact that I got quite bored of my degree, um, which led me into journalism because I, I joined the student newspaper in my final year as a, in, in the hope of cutting out my CV, essentially, and discovered that I loved journalism. And then really after, after graduating, realized, it, this was in 2011, realized that data journalism was just, just becoming a thing. So this idea that you could marry the sort of desire to figure out what's going on in the world and communicate that to people with data. And then since then, I did a, spent a couple of years at The Guardian on their data team back in 2011-12. And then I've been at Financial Times since 2013, which I really saw as the place that was, that was doing this in the most sort of serious and rigorous way. Great. So it sounds like a real, a real seam of an analytical approach and uh, from, your, from your very family upbringing. As well, it sounds like you've also got a ready-made critical group of friends to help you whenever you're thinking about a story. Yeah, it's it's really interesting actually because one thing I think a trap that um, sort of people who, who work in the in the sort of data visualization space a trap that people can fall into is there's a very sort of strong community of people in data visualization, but it's quite a tight knit. Sometimes can be quite an insular community. So I think. There can sometimes be a tendency to make charts for, for your fellow chart makers, as it were. And so something I actually find really useful, I, I think this, this maybe sort of speaks to the stuff I was doing during the pandemic, is um, I will often send an early draft of a chart to friends or family who are very much not in the chart space. The feedback will often be uh, quite cutting, but in a way that I, I find immensely useful. Because, you know, there's sometimes, the way I think about it is sometimes you can make a data visualization which everyone in the data visualization community will say, wow, that's amazing. And then the entire rest of the population will sort of shrug and think, I have no idea what that's saying. So we're already starting to talk about audiences and think about audiences for the work. Do you know what, there are a lot of people who are interested in painting a picture of what's going on with the state of the NHS or the health of the nation. And there are lots of different ways of doing that. You know, you can ask patients and staff for personal testimony, you can do documentaries. What role do you think data has to play in painting a national picture of what's going on with the NHS or what's going on with the health of the nation? It's a really interesting question. And for me, my sort of approach here is that sort of with great data becomes great responsibility almost. Um, and that I think, and it's, you know, not just a sort of 
hot take, but there is actually a decent amount of evidence that when you present something in start or table form, it has more cut through than someone, uh, or it can have more cut through than someone sort of simply sort of making the same point without statistics. On an issue as important as, as healthcare and how our lives being, are getting better or worse and how we should be doing things differently as a society, I think it's just even more critical that as someone who works with data, I make sure that not only is the data sort of technically correct, but that it's really capturing what's really happening. So, you know, in, in, in an issue such as healthcare, I, I think it, it could not be more important that we're using actual data to make decisions. One of the things I've noticed, John, about your work is that you use pretty novel data sets as well, at least ones that I don't often see used to describe healthcare. So I think you did a piece on privatisation where you included data on people crowdfunding their own healthcare. How much of what you're trying to do is not just tell the same story that everyone's been telling about the NHS, but tell, tell a different story with data? I think for me, I'm just trying to trying to work out what is the story of, of the moment. There's this sort of constant hum, as it were, of fears of the privatisation of the NHS, whether that's, you know, in one fell swoop or whether it's a more slow, gradual process. So for that piece, I was really just thinking, you know, how can one determine the extent to which that is happening? You know, is the NHS being privatised, whether from the top down or bottom up? And we've heard these stories for years out of the US about the fact that so many so many Americans um, don't have the finances to pay for their often extortionate bills and therefore they have to resort to crowd, crowdfunding. And I just thought, although, of course, it's going to be on a much smaller scale in the UK, is that something that might be happening here? Because, you know, I thought if this is true, it would be it's just a really powerful way to get across the situation that we're now in. There was another example recently looking at this question of to what extent are people who need healthcare able to receive that healthcare. For the best part of 20 years, that was a, a question that was asked on an EU survey. So people in countries all across the EU were asked, did you need medical treatment or examination at some point in the last 12 months? And if so, were you able to access it or not? And that's a fantastic data set. But of course, the problem that some of your listeners might have twigged is that the UK has left the EU. So since 2018, actually, we've not been in that data set. So in that instance, I actually um, worked with YouGov to sort of field a, a one-off update to that survey for the UK, which, which showed, I think, as to, to few people's surprise, that this issue of people needing, needing to access healthcare and not being able to is, is now higher in the, in the UK than anywhere else in Europe. But just another, another example of how if you, if you just rely on the data that's already out there, you can do a hell of a lot, but sometimes there are very obvious questions we should be asking and we don't yet have the answer to them. And I think for me, it's just key to always to not say, well, it doesn't exist, but to actually try and fill those gaps. And I think that's a really good example of how you're a data journalist, not only a data analyst. And, you know, I've been working in health policy for over 15 years now, and I feel that I'm still scratching the surface in many ways because it's such a big field. How do you choose what you're going to focus on when you're going to write a story? Yeah, so so for me, data, the role data really has is to determine which of the stories, which of these human stories we should be telling and then allowing us to amplify those. I think the way I tend to approach this is is kind of with that in mind. It's to speak to as many people as I can who are either points in that data set or who work closely with the data set or who actually create that data set and then allow that to sort of make sure that I'm using that data in the right way, I'm interpreting what it shows correctly, 
and that I'm then finding the human stories that that need to be told alongside that. It's it's really about sort of marrying those those things together. So for me, it's not about data trumping everything else. It's not about saying, sorry, your lived experience doesn't count because it's not borne out by the data. But it's about just marrying up the the, the sort of sterile quantitative data side with the the human stories that reflect what's going on there. One of my, well, it's, it's more of a sort of take about how we talk about healthcare in the UK is that because of the sort of huge role that the NHS has in British society, you know, it's, it becomes almost synonymous with health. You know, it's, it makes perfect sense, but I think it means sometimes we, have, we talk too much about particularly secondary care and then to a lesser extent primary care and not enough about wider sort of social determinants of health and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's a constant challenge to make sure I'm not just sort of accidentally focusing too much on one area and ignoring another that's really important. So I guess I I think the main thing for me is just speaking to as many people from across the space as possible so that I'm constantly sort of exposed to different perspectives. Um, completely different example would be occupational health. I've had some fascinating conversations with people about things like the interplay between work and health. You know, you've got the sort of two different angles there as well. On the one hand, having a job can be a really good promoter of good health but on the other hand there are some jobs which worsen people's health that's something that again we very rarely talk about when we talk about health in the UK but it's clearly a a very significant thing so if I speak to as many people as possible and read from as many different sources as possible then I hopefully won't sort of forget about key parts of the puzzle. So because it's a podcast people won't see me smiling but I am smiling because it is it is strange how a lot of the things that are going through your head are things that go through our head of have we got the balance right in speaking about health services compared to the things, the wider things that make us healthy. So it's interesting that that's, that's a common an issue. I wanted to ask you about, you know, we talked a little bit about how you choose what you work on. How is that informed by the impact you want to have? Because I guess as a journalist, a large part of your impact is through reporting on a subject and, and helping people understand a complex issue. But how do, you, how do you think about impact? What impact do you want your work to have? And I guess, have you seen any examples where something's changed as a result of a piece of work you've done? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I think it's, it's often a strange one for journalists because you, we sort of occupy this, this space where there, there, are, there are two very different sides of it. On the one hand, our role is just to, just to sort of surface what's already out there. It, it's, to, it's to make people's voices heard. But then you do get into this space where you're you re- you become aware that the stuff you do can have an impact. It's reaching you know people in positions of power, and they might be influenced to to make certain decisions based on what they read in the FT, for example. You know, I was asked to give evidence to a House of Lords committee um, earlier this year about the interplay between health and the labour market, and it's sitting in a room and being asked questions by. Mervyn King and, and Lord Stern and people like that and thinking, wow, this is not where I thought I was in the food chain, as it were. I think it just really underscores how it's it's so, so, so important to get this stuff right. You know, if you think that government policy is is going wrong and you think, well, that we need to we need to reshape or influence the conversations that are being had by decision makers and policymakers, then that can be good. But yeah, I, I just think there's a you don't want to go too far the other way and get this sort of inflated sense of importance. So yeah, I, I guess I just try to 
whenever, whenever I'm writing a piece, I'm not explicitly thinking like, how can I change things? But I might be thinking, here's something that I think is under discussed or underappreciated or misunderstood. And I'm going to write about that. Yeah, I think it comes back to your Uncle Ben, Uncle Ben like, with great power comes great responsibility. And it sounds like part of your answer to not letting the responsibility crush you is making sure you're you're on firm ground and getting the facts right, but also not letting it make you too risk averse. So you are still trying to find those stories that aren't being told. We'll return to the episode in a moment. Start the new year with a fresh look at the current challenges and opportunities facing the healthcare system. On Tuesday, 24th of January, we're hosting a free online event where we'll be looking at what's in store for health and care in 2023. Join the discussion and share your questions to our expert panel of guests. Find out more on our website at www.kingsfund.org.uk forward slash health and care 2023. Now, back to the episode. Do you think the public's changed its relationship with data as a result of the pandemic? Or, you know, have you noticed a difference in the Financial Times readership and how they use data or how they respond to your columns since COVID? It's really interesting. So I think that this has basically happened in two directions simultaneously. On the one hand, the fact that, you know, people people were seeing charts and graphs on their on their TV or on their laptop every day, essentially, for months. And I think just the impact that has on data and visual literacy can't be un- can't be overstated. Um, back in the early days of sort of March, April 2020, I had old school friends who I've not spoken to for maybe like 15 years get in touch and say that things like, oh, my mum just shared, shared one of your charts. That, for me, was just kind of amazing. The fact that it's not just the people I, I grew up with, but you know, their parents, it's people who may not have interacted with charts or been exposed to charts on a day-to-day basis since they were at school and were now not only seeing charts but understanding charts and feeling confident to sort of share those charts with people knowing what they were saying. So I think just in terms of people's comfort with and, and even expectation of um, being being shown data, I think that's definitely been a good thing. I think on the flip side, though, the one of the other things during the pandemic was this 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 growing realization, at least among some people, that it, you know we think of data as just this purely objective thing, but you absolutely can by just selecting which bits of data you you show or, or which countries you compare, you can influence the the sort of message that data provides. You know that the constant thing that came up time and time again in the pandemic was Sweden. Someone could show a chart comparing Sweden to, um, you know, the US and the UK and say, you know, look how much better Sweden did than uh, these countries, despite not locking down. And then someone could take exactly the same data set and show Sweden compared to Denmark and Finland and Norway and say, look how much worse Sweden's done as a result of not locking down. So I think for a small number of people, the lesson of the last two and a half years is, oh, you can show anything with data. But I think almost that's that's not actually a bad lesson to learn to be to be a little bit more critical of how we think about data while the while on the aggregate I think the the shift has definitely been to more comfort with being confronted by by charts and numbers. Yeah, I think that's a really really important point that data, you know, it's not inert, it's not neutral 
everyone, everyone who ever creates a chart is making editorial choices about what they show and how they show it. And the more we're aware of that, the better. Um, and that actually takes me on to the next, the next thing I wanted to ask you, which is how health data is talked about and used. Because I think health, you know, probably like many other places, is one of those industries where you get what I call highest ever syndrome, where a government of any hue will say highest ever number of staff, a press release, highest ever level of funding. Uh, and on the other side, you might have campaign groups saying highest ever level of need, highest ever level of demand. What's your take on you know, how helpful is it to have that type of discussion and, and whether there any advice you would offer over a better way of doing it? Yeah, that's that's a really fantastic point. I think it's it's almost like what we we sometimes talk about as scoreboard journalism, analysing or, or talking about everything just on the basis of very simple numbers that everyone knows don't t- don't give the full picture, or you know the way that elections these days are increasingly talked about as a horse race. It's just sort of who's going to win, who's doing better. It, it's not how are these policies going to impact people's lives, and. I think there is just a really frustrating and pretty deeply entrenched bias within the news industry just to to love those stories about highest ever or lowest ever, but to very rarely talk about broader trends and how diff, how, how a highest ever and a lowest ever might be correlated and why. So my approach is I try to very rarely ever talk about just one data series or one data point because for me the really important stuff to understand is how these things interrelate you know there's a really good example of that was some of the work that um the ifs published a couple of weeks ago making this point that although resources for the nhs in terms of numbers of staff or um, amount of day-to-day spending are, are significantly higher today than they were in 2019 the amount of activity the that hospitals are able to that hospitals are doing you know the, the number of admissions of surgeries is still lower than it was in 2019. And that is a very interesting and nuanced point about how it's sort of necessary but not sufficient to give the NHS more, more resources. There are much more things that need to be done to, to sort of empower and allow hospitals to do the amount of work that they need to. And so, yeah, you know, someone could simply have, have said, oh, hospitals aren't doing as much work as they were in 2019 you know, this is a disgrace. Someone could equally have said, you know, oh, the NHS has has got more resources than it's ever had. What's the problem? But it's by combining those things and then filling in the sort of crucial missing step, which is that the number of beds, the number of staffed beds available for hospitals to use is still below where it was in 2019 due to things like COVID and and, and the impacts COVID has had. That, you know, that's where the the key insight comes. So, yeah, I think my approach is just to to always make sure that I'm talking about the the additional context around any one of those sort of highest or lowest ever points. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about a piece of work you did on the census and immigration for two reasons. One, because it is relevant to health and care policy because those sectors rely on on migrants for joining the workforce, but also because I think it it really highlighted elements of the approach you were just talking about, which is using more than one data set, working through an argument almost and backing up with data. So could you could you talk a little bit about that piece of work and your approach? Honestly, that one was was almost an almost an easy piece to do in some ways because some of the arguments that were being made were sort of so straightforwardly incorrect. Um, that it almost sort of fell into my lap. It was like, well, like, you know, I know that I know that this is just simply not borne out by the data. So, you know, we had the claim 
the most obvious one was this claim that um, the decline in the number of people who say they're Christian in the UK was was due to um, you know quote unquote mass immigration, and you look at the data and it's it could not be more the the opposite. Uh, you know that the decline in Britons identifying as Christian is in, has come entirely among white people born in the UK who of course now say they have no religion. And there's actually been an increase in the number of British Christians who come from a Asian or, or or black background. So, you know, it's stuff like that. It's almost, I sort of wake up with a smile on my face because I think, oh, this, this piece almost writes itself. My approach is always multiple data points that, that make an argument. So, John, we're recording this towards the end of 2022. And looking back at the year, what are some of the what are some of the big health stories that stick out in your mind? It's really interesting because it feels like there've been so many, you know, at the start of this year we were still very much in in sort of the throes of the pandemic and there was you know, the Omicron variant was emerging and there was this this real fear that everything was about to sort of completely collapse and and I guess the interesting thing looking that the the sort of 11 12 months since then is that that fear was both misplaced but also still kind of true covid in in the sort of acute sense has not overwhelmed healthcare in britain but the sort of knock on effects the second order effects are absolutely still a key part of what we're seeing today you know we've still got a couple of thousand hospital beds every day occupied by patients who are in hospital specifically for covid and that is about 2% of all hospital beds. And when you have a system in the UK that has been running hot on hospital bed use for decades, that 2% can be the difference between a system that's under pressure, but you know getting by, and a system which is in a complete state of crisis with no free beds for, for new, new admissions, emergency admissions to be put into, which is exactly what we're seeing now. You know, similarly, there's the just the amount of additional stress and pressure that covid has has placed on on the workforce you know we've still got um sickness absence rates that are much higher than they would would typically be even for this time of year and that again is all just squeezing capacity in a system that was already run very very close to the bone so you know covid initially in in terms in an acute sense but now in this sort of chronic and second order impact sense is, has very much been i think a, a sort of consistent part of the story and then, you know, in the last six months, it's really been the the crisis in emergency care. But it, but again, I think there's still some public misunderstanding about what's what's behind that. There's almost some some people I think, well, maybe we're still looking at the the impacts of COVID infection in terms of that causing much much more disease and illness in the population. And while there's maybe a small amount of evidence for that, it's it seems much more to be the case that broadly the same number of people as we would as always, are turning up in A&E, for example, or are, or, are, or are needing to call an ambulance. But again, it comes back to that shortage of staff beds as to as to why those people aren't getting into hospital quickly enough, if at all. So I think it's just that, that sort of interlocking relationship between those factors, the your sort of chronic underinvestment in, in infrastructure and healthcare over the last the best part of two decades, meaning that going into the pandemic, the NHS just had much, much less spare capacity than the vast majority of our peers. And when you then sort of hit that with the shock of the pandemic of of COVID, the UK is just 
we're just finding out how vulnerable the NHS already was, essentially. So, yeah, I guess that, that for me is the sort of big picture from 2022. I guess, in a way, you can't imagine a scenario where the political environment is more feverish than it was in 2022. But it might easily get that way as we approach the general election. So I guess your role building these nuanced, fact-based arguments about and pictures of what's going on will only be more important. And sort of turning to the future, because when this episode goes out, it'll be at the start of 2023. What are some of the things on your mental dashboard is, or these are the emerging trends I want to keep an eye on? Or are there any stories where you think, you know, I've always wanted to find the time to do something on that, that you're going to try and get to in 2023? Yeah, definitely. Um, The big thing is, what do we do now? Uh, You know, we've identified many problems I'm sure there are still other problems that we're yet to identify, but the question is, is how do we fix this? You know, especially when we start talking about different timescales. If, if we're saying that the problem is a shortage of staffed beds, then how quickly can you get more staffed beds out there? And the answer to that is probably not as quickly as we would like. And therefore, the question becomes, well, what other policy interventions or initiatives can be launched that could reduce the 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 rate rates of bed occupancy as they are at the moment without affecting patient care so one thing i'm keen to look at in the new year is what are examples of initiatives that hospitals around the country and not just hospitals of course but the the sort of whole healthcare apparatus examples of initiatives that are being rolled out which are having an impact on this so you know we're hearing about things like the use of virtual wards so that patients are still being seen but they're not occupying beds, an increase in the use of robotic surgery so that it takes people less time to recover and, and again, reduces time in beds. Even even more, uh, much more low-hanging fruit, like more joined up, joined up recording of data in hospitals so that patients can simply move in and out of beds more quickly than they currently are. And, and, and that's one where I think that there's, a, there's often a reflexive reaction from people to say, our hospital staff are working as hard as they can, sort of stop bashing them. But I think this is not bashing hospital staff. It's saying that the resources that our hospital staff are given to manage the flows of patients through beds are threadbare and are antiquated compared to, to what a lot of peer countries are working with. So, so that, that's some of the stuff I'm, I'm keen to look at. I mentioned earlier as well this idea of the social determinants of health and to what extent is British healthcare under more strain simply because we have a less healthy population and, you know, again, what are some of the policy tweaks we could be doing there to improve things? You know, there was that horrendous story a month or so back of the two-year-old child who died because of a mould sort of bacteria that was picked up due to incredibly poor quality housing and it feels like Poor quality housing may be a bigger issue in the UK than it is in other countries. So that's another thing I want to look into. So, yeah, I think for me, it's just a question of unpicking why health in Britain has seemed to be deteriorating so quickly. And what are some of the tweaks that we should be making, especially, as you say, going into a new um, potentially a new party being in charge of the country? What are some of the policies that party should be enacting to turn these trends around? It sounds like 2023 in some ways will be a continuation of the work you've been doing over recent years with your focus on what makes us healthy, not just what state health services are in, and taking a fact-based, evidence-based approach to all of this. And John, you've been working at the Financial Times for a few years now. How do you, how do you keep it fresh? How do you keep it exciting and different 
Um, I think often the world the world sort of does that. In the time that I've been at the FT, we had Brexit, we had Trump, we've had a pandemic, we've had the cost of living crisis, Russia, Ukraine, all of these things, and, and now this this sort of broad based deterioration of of health in the UK. So, what's new? You know, how can I write something which isn't just a re a sort of slight reframing of the thing I wrote a month ago? But yeah, you know, the world is is an incredibly interesting place and there's an enormous amount of stuff going on that I think we still either don't understand at all or misunderstand. Well, that's all we've got time for today. John, thank you so much for joining me. You can find the show notes for this episode and all our previous episodes at www.kingsfund.org.uk forward slash KF podcast. And you can get in touch with us via Twitter. Our account is at the Kings Fund. This episode was edited by Bespoken Media. Thank you also to our podcast team for this episode. That's Emma Sheffield, Natalie Cleverly, Daniel Jeffries, Toby Brown, and Jen Thorley. Don't forget to subscribe, share, rate, and review this episode wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, thank you for listening. We hope you can join us next time.